So this is where we're at. We're kind of going to rewind just a tidge in that story, and we're going to go to Luke 23, verse 12. And before that, I just want to talk about politics. Um, Politic or politics means the way in which you interact with other people. Polis is people or city, this collection of people in your community. So politics is not actually what candidate or party line in, in the origin of the word, but really it's your ethics. It's your ethics in which the in way how you pursue uh, things to happen in your community, community development, it's community enrichment, community improvement. Um, however, now we associate the word uh, politic with politicking, and we think more like, like I think I heard my AP government class, she says, the key word here is ticks. It's like a bug. People like bug you in the way in which they do their politics, right? It's the way in which we try to get what we want or try to make our agenda that will benefit us and our values and our well-being. It's this way in which we do that, right? Um, so it's more of a negative connotation. Uh, recently, the New Mexico uh, state officials are asking the U.S. government to do something about uh, the border crisis. They said... Either both sides are just focusing on blaming each other. We're, we're tired of people politicking and making this a political issue, they said, and not actually doing something about it. So this is what I mean by the negative connotation that we have with politics. It's the playground where we fight for power. We politic, we influence, we word things a certain way, we debate, we make coalitions, we start smear campaigns, we develop platform ideas that will try to influence people to do what we think is best, right? I'm not saying politics are bad, but this, this idea of politicking, of manipulating, of posturing, slandering, of organizing insurrections, of corruption, of hiding that corruption, of murder, paying off people, this is bad. What we do to obtain and hold and wield and win back power, this is really what we're trying to deconstruct in this series. As, as followers of Jesus, an unprecedented amount of evangelicals, and especially white evangelicals, formed a coalition around someone who attracted them, claiming to not be a typical politician, but he did some of the most serious politicking I think we've seen in a while. He used his power and to obtain power, and I'll just be honest, the evangelical community kind of fell in love with him, head over heels. An unprecedented amount of Evangelicals, 81% of especially white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016. 81% broke all of the former um, percentages. This number decreased to 75% in 2020. However, it still appears that there's something that happened. And the reason why I'm going to highlight white evangelicals is because if you look around here, uh, City Church is in under the umbrella of, of evangelicals, and most of us are white here in South Dakota. So you may feel like I'm picking on this group of people, and I will tell you I am, because this, honestly, these are my people. And I don't mean to say in and out, but this is the demographic primarily that I'm a part of, I've been a part of, and that I'm still speaking to. And in our text today, there's things that just blatantly connect me to what's going on with white evangelicals that I think is especially 
uh, relevant. I'm not saying this doesn't happen in other parts of political lines and candidates. However, we are responsible to speak to our own to some extent. So that will be, you'll hear some of those uh, emphasis in this text, and that's why. Um, there is a decent amount of information and evidence that points to white evangelicals being a part of that horrible day on January 6th. I think some of this has been overstated and exaggerated. I think some of uh, the media has looked for a scapegoat and they saw a lot of Jesus saved signs right at the Capitol. And I think some of this has been unfairly, you know, um, painted as, oh, look at these are all these Christian white extremists. There were some, I don't believe that were a majority, but they were enough for us to actually address it. And so I'm not saying either or. I, I like to be in the middle. I think it's not as bad as some people thought it was, but it's also we were, we, as in white evangelicals, we were absolutely complicit. There were people in the Capitol with Bibles starting prayer of celebration. There were people with Jesus Saves banners at the door of the Capitol and inside of the Capitol. And whether you want to chalk that up to, you know, some people that you don't associate with, there's enough of the common language that was used that I grew up around that justified that violence. And so I'm going to speak to that today because I think we need to. All right, I'm breathing. It's going to be good. Um... What makes us lose ourselves in candidates, in populist movements? And I'm just, the question I'm asking through this text is, what makes us fall asleep to our Jesus politic and find ourselves complicit or even sympathetic in this violence? I had a close childhood friend on Facebook say, during live, while the insurrection's happening, start the burnings, start the hangings. So this isn't like this figurative thing. I had a close friend wrapped up in it, calling for violence. Someone I never would assume would take on a violent stance towards anybody. I think this happens on both sides of the political debate. Populism, you see uh, kind of the feel the burn, right? That's kind of the left-wing populism is, is the Bernie Sanders movement. And then there's the right-wing populism movement, the Tea Party. And so this is not just a one-sider. This is a human thing. This is a, what makes our human heart um, kind of get this um, mob mentality. I'm not saying people in either of those are mobs, but there's something that happens in these populist movements, these movements of the people. These movements of uh, populism is this, this uh, phenomenon where there's such a distrust in the authorities on either side. We don't trust that these elected officials are going to actually do what they say they're going to do, that they're a part of a giant, big, corruptive system. And though I agree to that to some extent, there's something that happens in humanity where we lose our common sense and our objectivity January 6th was not the only uh, infamous insurrection that has taken place where people motivated by their felt oppressions from the rulers, where people, some in the name of God, commit bloodshed and defy the very nature of the God and Savior they worship. So back in our text, this is actually what was happening. There's a political party in the Jews at the time of Jesus called the Zealots, of which some of Jesus' disciples were previously associated with. 
and some of who were sympathetic to their cause still. You see this in Judas. You see this in Simon Peter. And some of them were known for wanting to take up arms against the Roman oppressors. They were known to want to stir up the crowds to try to spark up a revolution. This was the zealot party. And one thing that they found out is this was a lost cause. Every time there was a rebellion, the Romans would just um, suffocate them even more. They would punish them for any sort of uh, rebellion. And so the priests and rulers of Jerusalem wanting to keep the peace because if they kept the peace, they would keep their power and they would keep benefiting from a corrupt system where they were making money and having preference and pomp in their community. Um, so they were trying to keep their power and in, so they would scapegoat Jesus. So they, would, they started spreading this lie that Jesus was trying to start a rebellion against Rome, which he never was, right? Jesus' followers were rebelling against their power. Their corruption, their injustice. You see that in Jesus flipping the tables in the temple, exposing the corruption. And so the priests were politicking, stirring up the people and the Romans to believe that Jesus' death was to their best interest. They were lobbying, you could say. They wanted the, the crowds and they wanted the Roman rulers to find Jesus guilty. They had already found him guilty in their kangaroo court the night before where no witnesses and no public could be opened in. But they knew they couldn't murder him, and so since it's against their own law, again, they're politicking. They want to kill him. They find him guilty of to be killed, but they say, we can't kill. So we're going to do a political hit. And so they try to get Pilate to kill him. Pilate finds no merit, passes the buck. Common political move, right? Herod, he finds out he's a Galilean, so he should go to Herod. Pilate doesn't want to be involved in this. He doesn't want to get a bad name for any uprising or Either way, he's in a, he's in a, um, a no-win scenario. So he sends him to Herod. Herod kind of toys with him, sends him back. So Pilate is stuck with dealing with Jesus. And the priest, lobby group, and mob keep inciting his death. So let's read Luke 23, verse 13. And as we read, I want you to pay attention to the people. The people in this story are the ones we're trying to identify. What happens in the human heart when we lose ourselves and lose our ethic in candidates in this election you'll see so verse 13 Pilate then called together the chief priests the leaders and the people there they are and said to them <clears throat> you brought me this man as the one who was per you brought me this man as one who was perverting the people and here I have examined him in your presence and found no guilt this man is not guilty of any of the charges against him so verse 15 neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Verse 18, this is what happens to the people. And they all shouted out together, Away with this fellow, release Barabbas to us. This was the man who had been put in prison for an insurrection, there it is, and had taken place in the city and for murder. So double whammy. Verse 20, Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. They kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time he said, why, what evil has he done? I have, found no, I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. But they kept urgently demanding. There they are, the people. They kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So there was election. Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 24, Pilate gave his verdict. 
that their demand should be granted. Again, the people have the power here. It's their demand that he's granting. He released the man they asked for, the one who'd put in prison for insurrection and murder. He repeats it. Notice. The one put in prison for insurrection and murder. He's emphasizing the hypocrisy here. And he handed Jesus over them as they wished. So we see in this story, the crowd has the power. The author is making them the political power here. Yes, the priests and leaders influenced them. That's another sermon for another day. But they chose to be influenced. And in their influence, we have an opportunity to look at our hearts today as, as Jesus followers and say, what happens when it comes to candidates? There's something that's exposed with this election in this court. So how did the people go from just five days previous on Palm Sunday, which is, by the way, today's Palm Sunday, what happened from Palm Sunday until this story? That they would go from all in to Jesus to shouting crucify him. Jesus comes rolling in. He's highly favored in the polls. In fact, there are no other challengers in the race, right? So what happens? They, they choose Barabbas and they change their mind. So what would lead people to this kind of change? And before we demonize them, let's separate ourselves from that and actually say, what's maybe inside of us that is inside of them? And there's three things I want to point out that I think happened. There's three platform ideas of Jesus' politics that they reject because of their own politics. The first thing, the first platform that I think Jesus, that that they're rejecting about Jesus' platform is that he's leading a spiritual kingdom and a spiritual party, you could say. And they wanted a military and governmental one. Okay? So Jesus is leading a spiritual kingdom and party. They wanted a military and a political one. At every turn, Jesus talked about spiritual kingdom. Every time the crowd, had, every time the crowd incited for him to rise up to political power after some miracle, they would yell for him to be anointed as their, their candidate. And every time they would as- assemble this momentum, he would turn away. He would go away to a quiet place. He refused their organization. And every time he healed, he was always referring to a spiritual healing, a heart change. He spoke of a spiritual community that had spiritual power, power greater and more invincible and more immortal than an earthly empire or kingdom, but of a heavenly kingdom that would not pass away, he said. And something happened in them from Palm Sunday to Good Friday something that I think was the straw that broke the camel's back for his popularity. He goes in Jerusalem to their place of of felt governmental political identity, and he prophesies um, to not only the temple, but to Jerusalem, that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. So not a very good campaigner. He's like, hey, in my kingdom, this is what's going to happen. Jerusalem, your very political identity, and in the, the temple where you, you know, where you feel like you have power, they're going to be destroyed. So if you vote for me, all this will be destroyed, basically. In 21, uh, Luke 21, 24, it says, they will fall by the edge of the sword. This is Jesus giving his campaign. They'll fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be taken away as captives among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, Again, not very um, winsome. 
And the reason why Jesus is bringing this up, he's saying, hey, my kingdom and, and Yahweh's kingdom was never about this nation state that you wanted to build. It's not about this physical security and advancement and prosperity. It's about a spiritual kingdom and a spiritual power that transcends nation lines. And so Jesus is speaking about a spiritual kingdom, not of a physical one. The second platform thing I think they're rejecting is that Jesus' kingdom was one of service and self-sacrifice. But these, these people wanted one, they wanted a kingdom of ruling over each other. So instead of service and self-sacrifice and, and lifting up one another, they wanted a ruler who would have them rule over the Gentiles. Evidence of this is in chapter 20, verse 20. He encourages them to pay taxes. He encourages them to get along, to be okay with being ruled. He calls out the scribes and priests in, in 20, verse 45. He says, you're devouring the widows. You're ruling over them with laws. He's calling out this corruptive, dominating politic that the Jews are wanting to, to, to manifest and want him to be a symbol of. He was always calling out this domination and always trying to reverse it and expose it. So these leaders were devouring the widows, meaning they were putting law upon law upon law, making them even more vulnerable and even more poor than they were. And later on in chapter 22, he gives another campaign speech about sacrifice and service. He says, He's giving a warning to what's going to happen. He says, before all this occurs, they will arrest you. So again, he's like, you vote for me. They're, they're going to arrest you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to hand you over to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This doesn't sound so good, right? This will give you an opportunity to testify. So Jesus is he's trying to get them to be servants, to testify. And say, so, so make up your minds not to prepare anything. I'll give you the words. And he's like, he's giving them a job, right? And then there's some great promises here. You will be betrayed, even by your parents and your brothers, by relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated because of my name, and not a hair of, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your souls. So just imagine a candidate saying, hey, if you follow me in my kingdom, you'll be hated. You'll be persecuted. You'll be arrested. You'll be betrayed by your parents and friends and brothers and sisters, taken away as captives. I think all of us would feel the same temptation to reject this kind of kingdom. It's a platform of suffering. The third thing I think they're rejecting, that I think we would all reject, that I think we can find ourselves in this temptation, is that Jesus was leading a kingdom that was inclusive and expanding past current religious political boundaries. I'll just say that again. His kingdom was one of radical inclusion, of expanding past and current religious boundaries and political boundaries. And this inclusion was at the expense of the comfort and security of God's people. So they want security. They want their own comfort. They want their own boundaries. They, in a sense, they want to make Israel great again, to use a common day example. Jesus kept ringing this bell. He comes in and cleanses the temple. He tears down their sense of religious boundaries. In the temple, there was all these divisions and boundaries. Like this is where the, the people could hang out. This is where maybe 
the Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh could come. This is where the women could be. This is where the men could be. This is where the, the extra special men, the priests, could be. So there's all these divisions. Jesus comes and he, he's prophesying. Not only is he cleansing the temple and saying this is a, meant to be a place where all people can worship God. He then foretells its destruction. That it would be destroyed. This place of national and spiritual exclusivity. This place that they've corrupted with, those sense, with that sense of exclusivity. And he prophesies its destruction. They wanted to make Israel great again. But Jesus was tearing down that concept. Not only does he promise the temple's destruction, but like I said, he, was, he promised Jerusalem to be destroyed. Their capital city says this, I think in 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, this is all in his campaigning in Jerusalem, they, you'll know the desolations come. And those in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those inside the city must leave it, and those out in the country must not enter into it. Woe to those who are pregnant, you've heard this before. Woe to those who are pregnant or are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress on the earth. They will fall by the edge of the sword, taken away as captives among all nations. There's that national identity, right? And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. It would be this overthrow, okay? This dispersion of God's people that God had designed his people to be, to be witnesses to the whole world around them, witnesses of this news, of Jesus, of this all-inclusive, spiritual, sacrificial kingdom that knew no bounds of nation or ethnicity. Jesus was bringing Israel back to their Abrahamic identity that God blessed them to be a blessing a spiritual kingdom of people with a relationship to God that would be a light to the world. Jesus was dismantling these things so that they could be fully human again, so that they could be in their original politic. And this is why they wanted to kill him. And I think if we were there, we probably would have been among them. I don't think this means Jesus is against political boundaries, order, freedom, all the good things that we've seen in the world. I think there's a lot of healthy things about our nation and other nations. The point is Jesus is not taking sides. Not political ones, not party ones, not national ones. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And though we may have security as his followers, our security is meant for the purpose of us having the power to serve those that don't have security. It's meant for us to have energy and power to serve the outsider, to invite them in, to have a house to invite them into. This is the ethic of Jesus. This is the, the destiny of the people of God throughout the scripture. Jesus is less interested in maintaining the order all the time for the benefit of those who feel secure and are provided for and have the power. In fact, his platform is unconcerned with keeping those in power in power or helping those wanting power to get it. He's actually redefining power altogether. And he's saying to be truly powerful, this is a key theme in these four chapters leading up to this, to be truly powerful, one must detach from your national identity and interest, your physical identity and interest even, 
of self-preservation, detached from your own economic interests to be powerful in spirit, where the heart isn't given over to insurrection and murderous tendencies of getting and keeping power. That's what was going on here. That's the battle of this election, where the heart is open and sacrificial and unafraid and unaffected by those that are doing power plays around us. This is true power. This is the integrity of the human heart that Jesus was leading us back into. Not to close off and become violent towards one another, to the outsider, to the foreigner, even to the ruling class. Jesus doubles down on this, this sacrificial servant kingdom. He keeps his integrity throughout all these trials. He looks like the one who's lost, right? But his way and his kingdom perseveres. When he gets up on that cross, not only does he change hearts, not only does his ethic of empathy uh, turn the hearts of even the soldiers around him, that ethic of empathy and forgiveness and grace and expanding boundaries and, and a spiritual openness, that is what ended up changing the whole world. These, these Jesus people went on in their sacrificial, spiritual, open kingdom to change the world. And it persevered past the Roman Empire, past the Jewish little empire they had, past every empire, the Byzantine, the Turkish, the Russian, the Roman, the Anglo-Saxons, every Arabic, European, the Napoleon French Empire, the Spanish Conquistadors, the British Empire, Nazism, the Soviet Iron Curtain, and yes, even the great American Empire that's not even 300 years old, it perseveres and transcends that. Spiritual, sacrificial, serving, and inclusive kingdom will reign forever. It's immune to political changes and revolutions because it doesn't operate in the same dimension. So every time in fear and self-preservation we clench up, every time we say yes to war in our hearts or on the ballots, every time we vote for our best interests, our security, our own national political economic security at the expense of the marginalized in the world and around us, Every time we vote for a campaign and a candidate that activates nationalism, classism, exceptionalism, military political domination or greatness or bestness, these, these things, that is when we are compromising in this election of Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Barabbas, in Hebrew it means the deliverer, Jesus, Barabbas, son of our fathers. It's the son and heir of the way of the fathers, embodying man's way of politics, seeking a physical kingdom of power through the politic of insurrection and murder, it's repeated, right? So we either choose that way, the fear brain inside of us that thinks violence, tribalism, us versus them, or we choose Jesus, the Son of God, God's anointed candidate of deliverance. Jesus Christ, God's deliverer. Laying power down, lifting others up. Sacrificing to transform people's hearts in love. Radical inclusion of all nations, tribes, tongues. Loving the oppressor even. Forgiving the ones killing him on the cross. This is the Jesus politic. Changing divisions with the power of bridges, the power of love, empathy, and nonviolence. So as followers of Jesus, 
we will be continued to be faced with the temptation to vote and identify and put our hope in candidates that tempt our Barabbas-loving hearts. And if we're not careful, we can add to the cycles of war and rumors of wars and division and violence that begets violence that begets violence that tears our world apart. We will be tempted to align to a political party on either side that promises the perfect way, the perfect leader, who will make things right again. But to be faithful followers of Jesus, I would recommend a couple suggestions on how we handle ourselves with candidates. Couple things. Endorse lightly, if ever. Hope lightly. If you find your emotions and the longings of your hearts being attached to this candidate, it's a good sign that you're voting for a Barabbas. Don't Jesusify them. We've seen this in recent years on both sides, right? Our last two presidents. There was this messiahship to both. Don't compromise. And this is my last one. Not my last one. My next one. Don't compromise your Jesus ethic in supporting them, keeping them, or defending them. Don't. Sorry. So don't compromise your Jesus ethic. Take note of where they've made mistakes and do not resent, represent you or Jesus. So just see them in the gray. It's not good or evil, something in the middle, right? Don't romanticize them. Don't prophesy them to be president. (laughs) Don't let them cast a spell on you that you think that they're God's chosen leader, that everything they say and do is out of an extension of God. Don't demonize their opponents. See the good in both sides. Don't defend them with violence. So if, you, if you're doing these things I said don't do, it's a good sign that you're voting in the spirit of Barabbas. And I'll just say this, a no vote is a vote. It sends a message. I know some people don't like that I say that. It sends a message that these candidates are not okay with me. Amen. So if you found yourself doing any of these, I encourage you to take a step back, reread the Gospels, reread the Gospel of Luke. Consider the thrust of Jesus' kingdom, good news to the poor, lifting the lowly, upsetting the power and political systems, upsetting the crowd's expectations of making Israel great again, leading them to engage in a different politic, an entirely different party with different priorities and different talking points. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. I should say not a political one. Jesus' kingdom is one of sacrifice and service, not of ruling over others. And Jesus' kingdom is radical inclusion in the breaking down of national, class, gender, and religious barriers. Let's pray. God, thank you that even in the midst of a horrible story, where we hear people crying out for murder, murder of your innocent son, Jesus, that even in that, we get the grace of looking at our hearts and being aware of the enchantment that can happen where we lose our way, where we fall asleep to your kingdom and find ourselves in the nightmare of fighting, of othering, of violence, 
of hating and judging. We pray that you would help us be in the world and engaging in the world and engaging even in politics, but doing it in such a different way that bears witness of a spiritual kingdom that is so much greater than our current ones, so much greater than a political one, so much more invincible, immortal, and transformative than anything that could happen in our earthly ones. Help us stay in tune to that stream. Help us stay close to you, Jesus, in your politics. Amen.